Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Joel is well-known in the health and fitness community. He has an incredible knowledge and thirst for science and has figured out a lot of different ways that we can focus on the gut microbiome and immune immune function and also targeting specific pathways in the body that can amplify our results, whether that be for body composition or otherwise. He is one of my favorite biohackers. And today we really dove deep into common ideologies and dogma, diet variations, the second law of thermodynamics. And we chatted about calories in, calories out, or SECO. We also talked quite a bit about the health of the gut microbiome, the role of dysbiosis and inflammation, the role of butyrate. We talked a bit about my background and my health journey. He is someone who's very knowledgeable about fasting. We talked about fasting amplifications, hacks for overall wellness, sleep quality, and reductionism. I hope you enjoy this discussion that we had. I will be absolutely bringing Joel back to hear more about how we can make changes, small, subtle changes that are sustainable for lifelong health. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Joel, I'm so excited to connect with you today. I have to tell you, I dove down a Joel Green rabbit hole and devoured your book, which for anyone that is listening to this podcast, they're new to hearing about Joel. He has some really fresh and unique concepts on the gut microbiome, weight loss, et cetera. And so I'm so honored to have you joining us today. And for listeners to also know, it's also Joel's birthday. And so I'm extra grateful that you are spending a little bit of your birthday day recording with me. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. It should be fun. Yeah. So you've got a pretty extensive background. And so what got you from, you know, being an interval trainer with Olympic lifting to becoming super knowledgeable about nutrition and then the gut microbiome and being so well-versed in the science, because for anyone that reads your book, Immunity Code, I literally took, I have a legal pad in front of me, so I'm going to look like a gigantic dork, but 20 plus pages of notes. Cause I was just writing things down saying, oh my gosh, I'm trying to make all these connections. So how did you get from that to where you are today? Uh, boy, uh, long road. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would say really necessity and a, trial, a lot of trial and error necessity and a lot of dealing with the post-mortem, I would call it, of different techniques and protocols that I had just as a consumer implemented on my own, just, you know, trying to do that thing we all do. And then getting four or five years down the road and kind of getting sort of the, what do you want to call it? The, the bite at the end of the apple or the <laughs> getting the hair of the dog, so to speak, just getting the negatives of, of a lot of the positives. And so a lot of that led me into just trying different things. And for me, it kind of culminated in the mid two thousands where I was, I was running a company and I had, you know, quite a bit of time already down. I had about 30 plus years in it, you know, kind of doing the whole fitness thing and, you know, all that stuff, fatness, fasting and all that. And what happened to me was I just literally got into a situation where all of the knowledge I gathered over all these decades just didn't really work. And it's what kind of quite literally shook me up a lot. There was one night I remember um, doodling kind of at the end of all of that. It was sort of 2006. And I was really thinking about the previous three years and like, gosh, like, wow, what had happened? You know, because I gained all this weight working, mm. you know, crazy hours and all that. And I just started doodling and uh, looking at a, a meal and started making notes on the meal. And, and I started just really, just a big shift happened in my thinking, a really big shift where I, I really began to really think about what actually worked over time and what mm. didn't work. And, and that led me down this, this kind of rabbit hole and, you know, never got out. So <laughs> No, and I'm grateful because I think on so many levels, when we get out of our own way, when we, you know, embrace and consider that people that are not technically, you know, you're not a physician or a researcher, you're not a nurse, but the people who are thinking outside the box really bring up ideas and concepts and ideologies that can 
force us to think of things a little bit differently. You know, I'm curious because I feel like on nearly every day on social media, especially because I talk so much about fasting, people are still very preoccupied with calories and mm-hmm. they're very preoccupied with macro counting. Mm-hmm. And I think in so many ways, we've done such a tremendous disservice to mm-hmm. our patients or clients because we've forced them to look at the opposite of what they really should be reflecting on. Do you agree? Yeah. You know, it's very, it's very unfortunate. It reflects in a larger way on patterns of thinking that have really taken root in society at large, which is that when it comes to calories in and calories out and Keiko and all that, you know, that the truth is that we cannot not, not ignore it. You know, calories do matter, but there's a lot of other things that matter. And what we have today going on that I've seen, you know, particularly in social media is you have sort of one group of people that wants you to believe that these are the answers which cannot be questioned. And if you question them, it's not science. And it's really ridiculous. It really is. And it's not true. When you look at the calories in, calories out debate, there's really two things that I look at. One is the sustainability of it, the practicality of it. And the other is the factuality of it. Mm-hmm. In terms of the practicality of the sustainability of it, it's, you cannot create permanent change with temporary behaviors. It's not going to happen. And when you look at what actually happens over time with most people, and I'm talking the long haul, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, by and large, the vast majority of the bell curve is not going to count calories every day. They're not going to do it. And so if you're trying to create an outcome, which is a long-term thing, a long-term sustained outcome by temporary non-sustainable behaviors, you're not going to get the result you want. That's the truth. Okay. And then just getting to the factuality of it, you know, there is this ongoing sort of what's called a war. (laughs) so to speak, in the sciences between uh, a couple of groups of guys, you know, on on the one hand, you have Kevin Hall and some other scientists who are, you know, very, very bright guys. And they've really tried to reduce calories down to the first law of thermodynamics. And so they have acolytes surrounding them sort of in the industry who grabbed onto that and kind of copy paste parrot their wording. And then the other side of that, you have another group of scientists and they have uh, kind of opposing theories. And the important thing to understand is that it's not settled that there's good debate on both sides of it. But most interestingly, most recently, there's a corollary, which seems to be quite good. And I've worked through the equations on it, the math in it. It's, there's, a, there's a paper just recently published showing that on the thermodynamic side that they completely had it wrong, that we're not dealing with the first law of thermodynamics. We're actually dealing with the second law of thermodynamics. So the missing ingredient, which I think experientially I found to be true over time, is that the sheer mass of food is the determinant, ultimately, of weight gain and weight loss. And so the second law of thermodynamics is conservation of mass. And what you'll see just kind of anecdotally is that when you get the mass of food up very high and the energy density very low in that food, it's going to work more often than it's not going to work. Like it's going to work very well. When you get food that's very massive, takes a long time to eat, but has very little energy in it, that it's very conducive to body composition, Mm -hmm. getting what you want. And so all that to say, you know, this whole calories in, calories out debate, it's not settled that there are good arguments on both sides. And the very latest arguments um, are very compelling. They're laid out in very compelling equations. Mm -hmm. And they show that probably we don't have this whole thing figured out. And there's more going on than just calories in, calories out. So, Well, I think the body is incredibly complex. And I think that there are researchers who are trying desperately to get answers and especially in a population that is so metabolically unhealthy at this talk that I gave over the weekend, I was mentioning that, you know, it's only 12% of individuals are metabolically flexible in the United States. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. when you reflect on the staggering amount of obesity and people who are overweight and struggling with metabolic disorders, it's no wonder that we are kind of conditioning people to want quick fixes. And so that's like where the mindset goes. And I love that you brought up the sustainability factor because anything that I want my patient or client to do, I want them to be able to do long-term, you know, the short-term fixes, we have largely conditioned an entire population that a pill is going to fix them, that a supplement's going to fix them, that there's going to be a a pill or a powder or potion that's going to do it. And unfortunately, the lifestyle piece, we can't go without talking about how critically important that is for sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. I think in my experience, the farther that we go down that road, the more it'll get, it'll get one to rethink everything, you know, really, because we want an outcome. 
Okay, you want some desired result. Well, you have to deal with two things. You have to deal with A, what is mechanistically true about the body. You have to deal with that. And then you have to deal with what actually happens over time, what people really do. And if you don't deal with either one of those things, or God forbid both, then more often than not, you're not going to get the result you want. And I've just found in my, you know, many long years doing this, that that's kind of true more often than not. More often than not, we're not dealing with what's mechanistically true. And we're not dealing with what really happens. We're not dealing with what people really do. Right. And exactly. uh, there's a chapter in my book I talked about this, which is ad libitum eating, which is, you know, every research paper ever done has a control group. That control group just eats whatever they want. They have a big word for that. <laughs> they call it ad libitum. <laughs> and <laughs> that's kind of the default mode of eating for mammals, for humans too. We eat ad libitum. It's just kind of what we do. And from time to time. And so if you don't factor that into the equation. The fact that you have to allow people to just kind of eat what they want periodically, we're not going to get the outcomes that we want over time. Yeah. Now, and it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the questions that came in the Q&A was someone who was obviously in the low carb keto world. And they had said, I'm surprised that you're suggesting people carb cycle. I'm surprised that you're suggesting people eat carbohydrates. And I said, well, that's such a individualistic kind of mindset that it's so important for us to acknowledge that we might need some additional carbohydrate throughout our week or a month or a day. I'll give you a good example. I flew out to Scottsdale and they, all the speakers got this lovely fruit tray, which I normally don't eat a lot of fruit. And I allowed myself because I was traveling. I was thirsty. I'm sure my electrolytes were a little, I'm sure I was a bit dehydrated. And so I allowed myself to have some pineapple and dragon fruit and boy, I slept really well that evening. And I was talking to Ben Greenfield the next day. And he said, Oh yeah, I always eat my carbohydrate in the evening. And you know, I, I do a late afternoon exercise and then I eat carbs the night and I always sleep really well. And it just got me to thinking that, you know, when we have this very narrow lens with which we view nutrition, we mm-hmm. lose out on opportunities. And so did I eat more carbohydrates? Than I normally do. Absolutely. Did I sleep really well? Absolutely. Could that have just been a fluke? I'm sure. But I think it's important for us to get out of our own way because if we are very narrow-minded and if we are very dogmatic, which I'm sure you see on social media, we say Twitter is an interesting place to try to navigate as an entrepreneur and as a clinician, because you sometimes you, you don't want to anger certain groups because if you do, you'll the vitriol will sometimes not make it worth your tweet but the point yeah. of why I'm mentioning this is I think that's kind of what you're also alluding to is that we get very pigeonholed and then we forget to critically think and we just keep this very narrow lens of the world. I would offer that there's some massive, massive flaws that are just completely incorrect running through the groupthink um, in this age that we're in. The first one is that that the body is sort of like a guitar. Mm-hmm. And you know when you hit that chord, it's going to sound the same every time you hit it, no matter how many times you hit it. Okay. And it doesn't work that way. The body absolutely does not work that way. There's a post I did on my Instagram of a sine wave, and I called it the map of how everything works, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is to say that most things up front, just about anything you throw at the body works really, really well up front. Um, We know that's true with drugs, right? You Mm -hmm. know, they work great up front and it works so great down the road. Well, it's true of anything. And that the more you throw that same given thing at the body, the less well it works then over time what you actually see is the inversion of the sine wave. And it's not only does it stop working, but you start seeing problems from the very things that used to benefit you. And that kind of is part of a bigger flaw, I think, in the thought du jour, which is that, and I've used this analogy before, it's, it's to say that if you think of an analogy, the best analogy is martial arts right around 1993. So if you look at around 1993, what you saw was these different schools of thought, you know, and they were all kind of in this decades long debate over which one was better. And what happened was uh, the UFC came along and within just, just a couple of years, they were all exposed. Like none of these actually really, really worked in a real fight. You had to use bits and pieces of all of them. And it was about knowing when to use what. And the n- nutrition has yet to go through that. But I think it's going through it even as we speak, where we're coming to an understanding that, for example, low carb, there's the idea that, you know, right now low carb is good. Well, actually, No. <laughs> You can get insulin resistance from sustained low-carb diets. You have higher risk of all-cause mortality. So there are positives to low-carbs, but there's negatives. And the inflection point just has to do with how much you do it and how long you do it. Mm -hmm. So there's actually a really good rationale for variability and variety, no matter how you come at it. You can come at it ancestrally. Variety was kind of driven by availability in the diet. And so there's actually a very good rationale to mixing things up, really good one. And so it takes us to this place of like, "Mm, actually, what's the right time to use the right thing? That's maybe a better way to look at it. At least that's kind of how I look at it. 
Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. No, and I think it's important for us to be flexible. In in 2019, I had a long hospitalization due to a ruptured appendix with a slew of complications despite being a healthy person. And when I came out, the team wanted me to eat largely a highly processed diet, you know, low residue. And I just said, time out, no way. And so I went carnivore for nine months. And that was the only Mm -hmm. thing my body could tolerate. And you better believe I missed a lot of foods. I think it took me about till about 18 months to be able to eat a lot of vegetables because I like vegetables. I have nothing against them, but people would say to me like, oh, well, you know, now that you're not doing carnivore. And I was like, I just personally prefer eating animal-based protein, but I also like vegetables. I like a lot of vegetables. And so much to your point, I think at different points in our lives, like you may be low carb at my point, one point then maybe someone may transition to plant-based for a short period of time and then move on to, you know, carnivore after an illness or something that goes on. And, And I think it's really speaks to, and I'm making a segue into talking about your book and a lot of the focus on restoring the gut lining, I think it's so, so important for people to be flexible and not rigid. And I'm not just talking about their diet. I'm just talking about their, whether or not it's their philosophy, their ideology, just recognizing that we're not designed to eat. I always say monogamy is good, but food monogamy is not good. It's really important that we are not eating the same exact thing every single day of the week and being super or every day of the month or every day of the year, because that rigidity can impact your health rather negatively. And and it sounds like that correlates with what you're saying as well. 
Yeah, very much so. Yeah. It's interesting when we think of um, looking at like, for example, like I'm very much like you, I prefer animal proteins, but there's a lot of benefit to vegetables and a lot of bang for the buck and those things. So those are all part of like what I do, but we're in this phase right now where, you know, certain ways of eating have become really popular and, and you find very strong adherence to those who just think, wow, this is it. I found the thing. I'm going to do it forever. Um, and what's interesting is like when you break down mechanistically, just the mechanisms in there, it's fine for a season. It's totally good for a season to do that. It's really not that big a deal. But if you do it too much, if you do it too long, there's really good reasons to believe that you might create problems down the road. And so just having variety in the diet uh, is the way you avoid those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's pivot a little bit. Now your book is fantastic. There's a lot of information. Like I feel like you just must be walking around with so much information. It was a massive compilation of what you probably have been thinking and wanting to put into observation. So, you know, given the global pandemic, given everything that we've been through as a society over the last 20, 22 months, I think focusing on immune function and talking about the role between the gut microbiome and immune function is really critically important, but I'd love to you kind of walk us through some of the basic tenets of the book. You know, you, you talk a lot about restoring the gut lining, the things you can do for that, I want you to talk about your Apple protocol because it never occurred to me. I mean, my mom, you know, my Italian mother would always say the most important thing to do is eat the skin of the apple. And I called her up and said, you're not going to believe it. I'm reading a book that's talking about how this actually feeds a specific type of bacteria in the gut, which is the first step in restoring the gut lining. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. I have uh, this vision in my head of your mom making this one and like, told you. <laughs> yes. You know you're in Bossy trouble. Italian mother, exactly. She used to tell when me all the time. Yes, <laughs> it's like, exactly. Oh, I, really, I yeah. messed up. Yeah. Big picture. The basic idea of the book was that we needed a better to-do list if we were gonna if we were gonna get what we really wanted over time, and we needed kind of a different goals. So the goal historically has been really like driven by looking good, with body composition. Like if I look good, I must be fantastic. But like what my experience kind of taught me over many years was that you can look good at certain points in your life, and it doesn't mean anything. Right. Like, like I've been in really good shape many times in my life. It doesn't mean a thing. It means nothing. <laughs> it makes you think you solved the problem, but if you just track it long enough, if you track what actually happened you know, what actually happens, it's nothing. It's like the, the real power is in your average. That's what really matters. So the basic idea of the book was that when you dig into like how the body mechanistically works, like what are the most powerful drivers of things? There are immune mechanisms, like immune mechanisms, things like macrophages, things like hypoxia proteins, they have vast control over the body as a whole. And not only that, but also over entire sets of organs, over the gut, over fat mass, over the liver, things like that. So um, what really kind of it came from was a lot of my tinkering kind of in the mid 2000s yielded these really dramatic results with very little effort like literally no working out, very little effort. And I've been doing stuff for a long, long time. I'd had 30 years already doing it and really targeting the gut right about 2006, 2007 created like these incredible like results, like really fast, really rapid. And I didn't at the time completely understand, you know, everything that went on, but I knew like, wow, there's, there's something here. So that led me down kind of this, this rabbit hole and eventually came up, you know, to understand that Really, if we can understand immune mechanisms and steer or control them, that you get a lot of bang for the buck. You get very big results with very little effort and very big results with very little effort is kind of what's needed for the average person. So the average person doesn't make a living being fit. And so the big barrier to advice working for them is time because time's a variable and they don't have time. And that was my experience. Like I, I was running this company. I didn't have time. Like all the things I knew to do took time that I didn't have. So really what the book sets forth is a new to-do list or a new order of operations where we just kind of one by one go down and do these things that take very little effort um, and have very big results. And so the first thing on the list was really targeting two bacteria, which was Acromancia mucinilfa and bifidobacteria, the species, the family of bifidobacteria. And the reason being that the photobacteria has just a massive amount of control over the immune system in general, and particularly the immune system in the gut. And then Acromancia mucinilfa, which is um, the primary bacteria of the gut mucus lining, works in concert with the photobacteria. And so what you see is when we look at the leanest, healthiest, longest lived humans, by and large, you find some commonalities. You find that they tend to have very certain profiles of the photobacteria, and they tend to have Acromancia. 
And it's actually very, very easy to increase populations of these species. So by just putting that first on the list and going at that, you get sort of this global scope of effects. You get, um, number one, the immune system in the gut kind of gets switched on. And it's not generally that well known, but antigen sensing in the gut um, is very dependent on specific species of bifidobacteria. And so when you have those species in the gut, antigen sensing works a heck of a lot better. The immune system works better. The gut junctions tighten up. And bifidobacteria and acromancia together, they are what you could call kind of lean bacteria. They produce different proteins that really increase fat oxidation and help the body stay lean. So the way to target those bacteria, um, the first thing in the book was apple peels, which um, I needed something that, acromancia is very hard to target. It doesn't like dietary protein that much. It prefers fasting um, and it prefers certain types of phenols. So um, apple skins were kind of like the, if you didn't have anything on hand, you could go get a bag of apples Mm -hmm. and you can just start eating apple skins. And what that does is there are these very long chain, what are called polymerized, but now I'm doing it, (laughs) (laughs) chlorantrocyanidins that feed acromancia. And then if you combine that with uh, another compound called human milk oligosaccharides, these are present in mother's milk and we get them when we're a baby. They really help colonize bifidobacteria and they really drive a lot of immune function in, in the gut. They drive what are called histo blood group antigens. And so this combination of things, it's a very strong witch's brew to get the gut kind of jumpstarted. And what most people have experienced to do that, it's kind of a range of things, but generally speaking, um, their energy really picks up pretty quick. Uh, they notice that they tend to lean up without trying too much, not dramatically so, but you know, they just definitely start to lean up. And they notice that sensitivities and, and allergies start to kind of go away, like uh, glutens and dairy intolerance go away. And that's all just from changing populations out in the gut. So that was kind of the first thing. And then the next sequence we just start going down the line is really going after things that drive immunity at large. The next is hypoxia. And most of us have some kind of hypoxia every night. We just don't know it. And so we're sleeping and we're not getting enough oxygen. And it's a major cancer promoter and does a lot of things that aren't really very good for the body. And then we just kind of keep going down the list and and then we eventually get to body fat. And that's kind of a a whole rethink about body fat, but long story short, that immune cells from the gut macrophages um, in concert with lipopolysaccharide and a thing called peptidoglycan wind up kind of essentially reprogramming our fat mass to be fat. When you get an open gut, you get these compounds get into the serum, they get into your body fat, they inflame your body fat, makes it really, really hard to drop body fat. And so by learning to target immune cells in your body fat, you get a leg up on it. And then there's a thing called the fat loss paradox I talked about in the book, which is really never, ever been talked about. It's the notion that the physical act, when you shrink fat cells, it actually creates a domino effect that drives weight regain. So the very act of shrinking fat cells for most people drives chronic weight cycling. It doesn't solve the problem. It just drives chronic weight cycling. And if we want to solve the problem, we got to figure that out. So those are kind of some big concepts that are in the book. Yeah. And they're really interesting because even as a clinician, even as someone that, you know, thinks a lot about the gut microbiome, I was completely like my chin was on the floor because what ends up happening is from a traditional kind of allopathic medicine perspective, we're like, oh, I'll give you more probiotics. You need more bifido uh, probiotics and acromantia. We don't know a lot about that, but, you know, even in my own health journey, coming back from being in the hospital, having profound muscle loss, muscle wasting, being in a hospital bed for 13 days and recognizing that it, I mean, it was going to take two plus years to restore some of the healthy gut microbiome. I wish I had had your book at that time, because I think it would have been hugely beneficial. Now, do you find that individuals, you know, as they do this apple protocol and they do this HMO powder, even those that are dairy sensitive, they're able to actually tolerate the powder itself. Do you find that there are any contraindications or issues there? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's always a range of facts, you know, from amazingly beneficial to like worst thing ever, you know, and that's just true of anything. So, you know, I always think in terms of the bell curve and I always think in terms of like, you know, the, the broad center of the bell curve, what's going to benefit, you know, that, but then always at the edge of the bell curve, you're going to have, you know, different exceptions based on things. So what you'll find is that um, the starter condition of the gut has a lot to do with it. So if you're coming to the table with a very strong gut dysbiosis, like you've got IBS or you've got Crohn's or something like that, then there, before you did that, there's a whole bunch of other steps that you want to look at. So the, the inflamed gut, the massively kind of inflamed gut, you know, has, is its own sort of pathology. And 
you know, I'm not a doctor. So in the book, I didn't want to go into pathology and all that. Mm-hmm. That's for you guys. But yeah, so what you'll find is that most people benefit tremendously from that. Smaller subset populations where they, they have existing you know, very serious issues in the gut. Um, they're going to have a very hard time starting off with apple peels just because mm-hmm. of the fiber. And when our guts are inflamed, we don't handle fiber very well. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I presented a paper on a panel like two weeks ago talking about how your colon can actually, from just not eating as often, can actually stimulate butyric acid and so, or butyrate. And so it was interesting that there's so much focus on fiber, 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 and, you know, the carnivores are in one camp and they're saying, no, you know, we don't need fiber. And, you know, there's all these plant-based defenses that are hugely problematic. What is your thought on butyrate? Obviously I've read your book, but just for the purposes of discussing this, because I get so many questions about fiber, people are paranoid to not eat fiber. They're not going to the bathroom frequently. I mean, there's so many nuances to this, but just as a general kind of methodology. What are your thoughts on butyrate? Well, you absolutely need butyrate. Um, it, that, like, it's, it's just kind of a non-negotiable thing. It is the primary source of fuel in the colonocytes. So you have to have butyrate. There's a number of ways to make it. You can make it from ketogenic pathway, which would be kind of a carnivore way of eating. There's another pathway, an amino pathway you can make it from. What is important to understand is that, um, you know, it's kind of like talking about motor oil. It's kind of like, yeah, you need motor oil. You got to have motor oil in the car. But the very best way to make butyrate is by fermenting fibers because you're going to get, as your end products, you're going to get um, very specific ratios of butyrate to PNA to acetate. They're going to be in the right ratios. There's a salvage pathway when you're making butyrate that you get where acetate gets recycled back in to acetoacetate, and then you get more butyrate, less acetate. Okay. So that ratio is important, but you also get a lot of polyphenols with that from fiber. And so that is optimal. Okay. Now you can push that aside and you can make butyrate from just proteins ideally, but the difference that you get into is that you're not going to make the same ratios of polyphenols. That's really important. And you're going to make ammonia. And you're going to get different ratios because you you don't have the acetate salvage pathway. So you're going to get different ratios of the short chain fatty acids. So in the short term, that's not a big deal. Over the long term, it's a massive deal. However, all that being said, we have to take the starter condition of the gut where the gut's at initially. So in the inflamed gut, the butyrate transporters are disabled. Okay. So in the inflamed gut, the dysbiotic gut, the butyrate transporters are disabled. They're not working. So feeding the gut lots of fiber is not going to work. Um, you have to rescue the gut prior to kickstarting fiber back in the diet. And so what a lot of people run into is they've had gut issues. They go on a carnivore diet and they feel, oh my gosh, this should wow, I feel better. The reason I feel better is because all those amino acids are very healing on the gut. And those, those animal amino acids are, they're very, very healthy and you're not taking fiber in. So that gives the gut a chance to spin down inflammation a little bit. But long-term what's happening is that you're actually creating a bigger problem. And I mean, over very long periods, five, 10 years. So all that to say that the very best way to make butyrate is from fiber, but you're going to find, especially in this age from overconsumption of probiotics, so many people have gut issues and inflamed guts that they can't start with fiber. And what I see a lot of people doing is they'll hear that, okay, well, fiber's got to, got to have fiber and they'll go and they'll have way too much fiber way too much fiber. And they just basically, it's the analogy I use is like, you tried to run a marathon because you heard marathons are good. And so what you did was you ran the first, the whole marathon on day one, and you're just destroyed from doing that. So fiber is very much like a muscle. Um, When you're reintroducing it back in, you've got to go very slow and it takes a long time and you have to condition the gut essentially into being able to handle it because the ability to handle fiber is one-to-one correlated to populations of bacteria and you have to grow those populations back. So that's the long and the short of it. It's just not as simple as we would like it to be, but there are answers, I would say. No, and that's very, very helpful. And it certainly has been my own personal experience that it took, gosh, I mean, 18 to 24 months to be able to, you know, even reintroduce some resistant starch into my diet and do it very low and slow, much to your point. I used to say, I say to some of my patients, maybe you start with an eighth of a teaspoon and you just slowly increase it. If you get a lot of bloating, stop at that dose and don't increase it. But you're right, I think, you know, we think if one tablespoon is going to help us, I'll take two and, and then they suffer the consequences. And certainly I don't think I've seen any 
And I know you're not a fan of stool studies, but I, I don't think I've seen any GI maps or DNA-based stool studies that have not had dysbiosis. And I feel like the past 18 to 20 months, the amount of dysbiosis I'm seeing in the gut, and for anyone that's listening, it's not familiar, it's, I always say it's like having weeds in the garden. You have an overgrowth of non-beneficial bacteria amongst the bacteria that we should have. And the other thing that I'm seeing, and, and I'm not sure if you've seen patterns of this as well, but you know, we talk about the estrobolone, the role of estrogen and, and estrogen excretion and you know, the phases of detoxification in the body. And for so many people, they're just the onslaught of estrogen mimicking chemicals that impact their body, or they're taking synthetic hormones, or they're you know, having feedlot animal meat. And it's just, I feel like when I'm looking at labs, one of the things that becomes very, very apparent is how poorly the gut microbiome looks, at least intrinsically with what I'm seeing. I know that in your book, you talk a lot about how it just gives you a snapshot in time. And it's just one type, one marker for the health of the gut microbiome. I mean, the jury's out. Let's put it that way. In terms of the, uh, the utility of gut mapping, the jury's kind of out. Like, like, it's not that there isn't necessarily value there. It's just that there's, number one, we're not 100% sure how accurate this stuff is. It probably is indicative. And the other thing, just in my experience, is that it's very possible to turn the gut over very quickly by really throwing some stuff at it. If if your gut's healthy, if your gut's not healthy, that's another animal. You got to take your time. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't don't say on that. (laughs) (laughs) No, and that's totally okay. But I find it interesting that as the pandemic has gone on, that, you know, when I'm looking at labs, any kind of labs, I think the stress level, the impact on the gut microbiome is without question. So I know that, you know, we've touched on fasting, you know, much like you mentioned, too much of any one thing is not beneficial. It sounds like in your past, or maybe currently you do it episodically. How do you integrate fasting or are you fasting right now? Is that part of your lifestyle? Yeah, it always is. Uh, But it's, there's a thing I do called the amplified fast, which is Mm -hmm. after kind of my experiences in the early nineties fasting, I, it was great for five years, like ripped to the bone. And then right about year five, I, I just couldn't stop eating. I was just eating uncontrollably and I really didn't know what I did. And it really bothered me. And cause I'd never had issues before. And so that took me down this road of trying to, you know, figure out what the heck I'd done. And all that kind of led me to this place that I'm at today, which is that when we look at fasting and we look at its benefits and we just start to, you know, inventory what those benefits are, you know, autophagy, AMK activation, HDAC inhibition, you know, ubiquination, all this cool big words stuff, you know, that goes on in fasting. (laughs) There's absolutely kind of an imperative there. Um, The question really is what about the negatives? And we're in an era where, you know, the perception is, well, there's no, there's none. What are you talking about? There's no negative. It's like, yeah, there is. So what I'm doing now is, is just really focused at kind of getting the maximal benefit globally where I'm not overemphasizing any one thing. And so I do what I basically kind of seems to be working is what I call the amplified fast. And that's that when you look at certain types of bacteria, they very much mimic many of the benefits of fasting. You could create a checklist and you could look at like, wow, uh, so this one here seems to activate AMK. Yeah. Well, fasting does that. That's interesting. And, you know, just keep going down that list. And there seems to be this like, wow, these are, there's some overlap here. So um, long story short, what I'm doing now is that there seems to be a very good rationale to the day prior to fasting is that you're really spinning up key species in the gut of bacteria, bifidobacteria, bifidum um, longum, for example. And what happens is that when you're sleeping the night prior to a fast, normally when we're sleeping, sleeping and fasting are the same thing in terms of the benefits. It's just, they're stronger during sleeping because sleep sinks them to our diurnal cycles. So there are certain genes that need to go off at certain times of the day and fasting kind of sleeping ideally does that. Well, when there are the right bacteria present, but not too much, then you get a lot of crosstalk. You get a lot of the bacteria talking to and doing the same pathways, the same things. So that what I've found, I think what quite a few people that have been doing this have found is that the day of the fast, you actually get much faster into the depth of the fast so that, you know, normally when you're fasting, like say the first day, you're, you're not really that hungry. It doesn't really hit you that much. It's, yeah, this is good to do. This isn't too bad. So doing the amplified fast, what you notice is that like literally within hours on of just fasting, you're like, my gosh, I feel like I haven't eaten in three days. And it's all that bacterial crosstalk, which ancestral narratives are useful. They're not hundred percent accurate. We don't know. Nobody was alive back then, but Basically, there's a good rationale to believe that in the list order of preferences, 
you know, the first thing most people might eat if they were starving would be, you know, some kind of game. Mm-hmm. And then on down the list to like the very last thing would be like roots. Like you dig up roots and you eat roots, you know, it's like, they'll keep you alive. But they're not very, not very know, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, not my first pick. But it turns out that there does seem to be this weird synergy between roots in a starved state, the bacteria that roots help propagate and extension of all the life extending pathways of fasting. So what I'm doing is I will take in very key fibers the day before a fast. And then the day of the fast, um, I just throw everything at it. I throw cold, I throw a lot of small molecules. So, you know, I'm throwing like naringin and retin and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, NMN and all this stuff at it. And then, and then fasting for a very short period, uh, usually maybe till noon okay. and then eating uh, very much like a keto pattern after that. And keto uh, mimics fasting very well. So kind of getting the best of all worlds without sleep disruption, without kind of major, you know, cessation of like stomach fullness and all that. I think it's really, you know, insightful to, I'm always a fan of hacking things or looking at things differently. And for anyone that's listening, that's an avid faster, you've got some really interesting information in the book. And one of the supplements that you talk about is berberine, which is something I obviously talk about quite as well. And we know that it can be utilized. There's a lot of good research using it head to head with metformin or glucophage, which is an oral diabetes medication. But specific to fasting, it does some very specific things that I think might be, you know, insightful and interesting for listeners to hear a little bit more about if you're comfortable, obviously you're comfortable talking about it because it's in your book, but you know, that's a much more kind of accessible, probably a name they've heard before in terms of supplements. Yeah. Berberine is kind of like poor man's metformin. Um, Uh That's kind of how I look at it. Berberine, um, you know, it's notable for a number of things. One of the things berberine does is it spins up a very key stress hormone called FGF21, fibroblast growth factor 21. I actually said that word. That's pretty good. So FGF21, it is a stress hormone. So we see it in response to feasting and fasting, mm-hmm. but essentially it helps a number of, it helps speed up a number of the, the outcomes that we want from fasting. So you're going to get more fat oxidation. Um, you get bigger activation of the AMP pathway, the life extending pathways. And so it's a good tool set. I mean, you need a lot of it, you know, you need a gram, you know, plus of it, but, and you don't want to do it all the time. I found, you know, it, it, particularly at bedtime, I found if I do it at bedtime now at this age that I get hypoglycemic, so I forget a headache, but it's very useful. Yeah. And it, it's interesting. I'm glad that you addressed the fact that it's something you wouldn't necessarily use every day. I've been reading that like dihydroberberine is supposed to be more bioavailable. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that as well. It's been around for a few years. I've never really talked about it too much just because you couldn't get it. Yeah. It's supposed to be more bioavailable. You know, it's kind of like the CoQ10 argument. I, I've just found usually, well, dosing saves all. So, you know, if you can find it and you can afford it, great. If not regular berberine, just need a little higher dose on that. Kind of what I found. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's interesting. And some of my insulin resistant patients will kind of tweak berberine daily. And then we, I explain, we want to use it for a period of time and then cycle it off. But for a lot of women that I'm working with, we'll use berberine if they've, you know, had an indulgent dinner, if it's a celebration, if it's a birthday, they decide to have some cake that they can do it and and not feel particularly guilty after the fact. Now, I would love to pivot and talk about autophagy. And, you know, this is a concept that listeners know quite a bit about, What I love is that you emphasize the concept of pexophagy. So let's unpack that and talk a little bit about the role of paroxysms and and how they work in conjunction with the mitochondria and why they're important. Well, yeah, that's kind of an underserved area of thought. So we have this belief that, you know, the energy producers within our cells are are the mitochondria, which is accurate, but it's not the whole picture. So Mm they work very much in conjunction with the mitochondria and these are the peroxisomes. So the peroxisomes uh, do a number of very specialized things in our cells. In particular, they're involved in the production of hydrogen peroxide and kind of detoxifying the cell. And they also are very much involved in with the mitochondria kind of in concert. So they regulate sort of the way that the mitochondria utilize um, energy. And so they're very much like the twin pedals on a bicycle mm-hmm. and what happens as we get older is, so the mitochondria, obviously we're, we're all familiar, the mitochondria, we kind of start to lose those and they, they don't work as well. They get less efficient. But at the same time, what's happening is the peroxisomes are really kind of downgrading themselves. They're not working very well. What happens is there are very key proteins called PEX proteins that lodge in the peroxisome membrane 
And what these PEX proteins do is they are responsible for regulating hydrogen peroxide flux in and out of the, of the peroxisomes. What happens as we get older is basically they don't work the way they should. And then we get too much hydrogen peroxide in the cell and that's a free radical and it's fine in small amounts and big amounts. It's not good. And so, you know, gray hair and all these negative things start to happen from that. So something that we need to have happen is we need to clear out mitochondria that aren't working periodically, you know, uh, mitophagy. And we also need to clear out peroxisomes that are not working, pexophagy. And the two kind of go together. And what's interesting is we're getting into things that aren't 100% known here, like mitophagy, there's a little bit better known, like how we can initiate that. Pexophagy initiating that is really kind of the frontier. One of the techniques that I talk about in my book it, that seems a little counterintuitive is that the peroxisomes they basically break down the very long chain fats. Um, they're very good at doing that. And after a period of sustained eating, sustained breaking down long chain fats, we need to clear peroxisomes. And one of the ways to do that is just to slam into high carbohydrate feeding. And that will shut down long chain fats in the peroxisomes and initiate pexophagy. So it's kind of an exciting frontier. You know, we're, we're just, you know, collectively haven't put too much thought into it, but I think it'll be kind of the next area of focus. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armour's colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Consuming Element on a daily basis is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health. And we know that by consuming proper amounts of electrolytes, it can contribute to quality sleep, which is critical to all of my perimenopause and menopausal patients and clients. We know that magnesium increases a neurotransmitter called GABA that is known for producing calming effects. And consuming adequate levels of sodium can help you sleep through the night because low sodium levels increase cortisol and adrenaline. Additionally, if you are intermittent fasting, it's important to understand that when you fast, two things can dehydrate you. Number one, if your insulin levels remain low, it can signal to our kidneys to excrete more sodium or salt, a process called naturesis. And as glycogen or stored glucose is broken down, the water left over from the glycogen breakdown is urinated out. So if you want to take care of your health in one of my favorite ways, you can consume Element electrolytes. My favorite flavors are grapefruit and citrus, but there are many others to choose from. And if you go to drinkelement.com slash Cynthia, you can get a free sample pack to try them out on your own. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash Cynthia for your free sample pack where you can try all of their flavors. Well, and it's nice to kind of feel like 
there's a whole other nuance to looking at the mitochondria, the health of the mitochondria, getting rid of disease and disordered cells from a different perspective. I certainly find that really interesting. Now, I know that it's your birthday, so I'll have to bring you back again because I have not exaggerating 20 pages of notes from your book um, and certainly many different directions that we could go in. I found, you know, your discussion about, you know, being very specific about targeted weight loss would be of interest. And obviously we can unpack this more in another session, but you were talking about applying ice to your skin and then applying menthol. Can you share with the listeners, you know, what this kind of methodology is used for specifically? There is so much about this book that literally was like blowing my mind. I would read like a chapter and then I was like, oh my gosh, I just have to absorb all of this and bring me back to my biochemistry days, which are many years ago. But kind of talking about that, because for a lot of people listening, they come to intermittent fasting as one example, because they want to change body composition. They want to lose fat. They're, you know, perimenopause, menopause age, and all the things that used to work, as you mentioned, stop working. And so you kind of have this hack, which I found really interesting. And I do intend to to try myself just out of curiosity. Yeah. Okay. So there are very few tool sets that we have that can basically get cells to do the things we want to do. And there's a, there's a group of tools that come under an umbrella and that umbrella is essentially what's called mechanobiology. Okay. And it's the idea that external forces can do things to cells. It can influence them and get them to turn on genes. And so one of those things when it comes to fat cells is cold. And what has probably on pretty good ground, and I've seen it work like myself, like literally done this within a period of four and five days and really kind of focused on it. And I've seen like shocking, like literally shocking, dramatic changes just from doing it. It's, you know, tinkering with hacks. So basically it's that when we're babies, we have brown fat, brown fat has uh, lots of mitochondria in it. It's very energetic. It's essentially muscle. That's what it is. Brown fat is muscle that is within fat. Um, Well, as adults, we can get something similar called beige fat, which is, which is white fat that kind of has a little bit more mitochondria in it. What's really interesting about beige fat is that there's some evidence that it might be permanent. It's not conclusive, but there's evidence that suggests it could be permanent. And one of the ways that we get there is through cold induction. And we can just kind of stack different things on top of one another um, to do it. So in a fasted state, if you apply menthol to problem areas, so menthol triggers uncoupling proteins um, in fat. It helps us to create more mitochondria. It helps to uncouple fat. And then on top of that, induce cold. And the sequence, the way that you would do it is you first apply the cold, okay? And do it spot targeting. So take some cold for about 10 minutes and put it in kind of like a problem area, like your belly fat or hips or someplace like that. And then give that about 10 minutes. And then after that, apply icy hot or apply menthol to that. And what happens is the menthol works synergistically with the cold. And then on top of that, if you add in muscle contractions, so muscle kind of takes the place of insulin and and very often body fat is insulin resistant. And so by using muscle contractions and just really squeezing and tightening, you you really help the process a lot. I've seen it definitely work. I've had plenty of people that say that it works. It's it's not a panacea. It's certainly not going to solve all your problems. It's it's a nice addition, but there's something to it. So Well, and it's interesting because I think about, I was at the hair salon last week and this one hair salon I go to now they're offering cool sculpting. (laughs) So the gentleman who was helping me said, oh yeah, you know, we do laser lipo. Do we do all these things? I said, do a lot of people actually do that? And he said, I don't know how any of it works. I'm just set up. I've been trained to just use the machine. And so I think in many instances, we're always looking for ways to, you know, fine tune our bodies. And and certainly that is a great hack. I did have a couple listener questions. A few of them were specific to sleep. They wanted to know what are your personal like hacks for sleep when you're struggling with sleep, you know, a supplement or strategies that you use that you have found to be super effective. Yeah. So what I've found is most effective and um, it's actually a good question. And I actually get menopause, I think like <laughs> three months ago and I'm like, like, whoa, what, like, what, what is, is this? this? What's <laughs> happening here? Whoa. So, you know, number one thing really understand that is that um, hormones and sleep are going to go together. So when you hit a hormonal decline, you know, you're going to see issues with your sleep and that's kind of a, like a, a genetic sort of let's get you out of the picture thing. Mm-hmm. You're taking resources up for all the, you know, all the young and viable. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to leave the hormonal picture out of this because that's a whole discussion. But so apart from that, 
the best thing I've found is everything. So there's no one thing that's going to solve the problem. But what is very effective is um, in the science, they call it combination therapy. It's kind of a big word for throw everything at it. <laughs> throwing everything at it really works really well. Like throwing 10, 15 things at it really works. And the problem with that is like, it works so good that, you know, I'll do it for a while and then I'll get cocky and lazy and think, oh, I don't need to do these three things. And then, you know, sleep disruption. And oh my gosh, and go back to doing all of them. So, you know, no particular order, just it's, and this is a bigger concept in the book, which is 10 improvements of 5% each. And that's really the way to look at it. Like nothing's a pan. I found, I can't think of maybe a handful of things in my life. I found that really like really solved the problem, but you, cause usually it's, it's usually 10, 15 things that work each gives you this much, but mm-hmm. 10 or 15 of those is pretty dramatic. So, yeah. you know, uh, top of the list, just a bunch of things, definitely blue blockers at night. It's going to help mm-hmm. sleep onset for sure. Like if you're not sleeping, so blue blockers are going to help. Absolutely. Mouth tape is going to help. If you're not mouth taping, you got a mouth tape, just mouth taping alone will completely invert the parasympathetic fight or flight thing that people get into. And you'll see the urination stop from that. And then add in the nose tape. So mouth tape, nose tape is massive. Leomide is another big one, which is, um, it's an endocannabinoid antagonist. And I found I got to take a lot of it. So what I would suggest is, you know, start small, start with like 200 milligram doses and work your way up to your tolerance. I'm doing a gram to a gram and a half these days. I don't know, I'll probably just have an inhaler next to my bed next step. And then a dog bane works really well. It's uh, you can get it. It's in a dropper. Dog bane's really good. And then a very small high carb meal at bedtime. So I talk about in the book, which like the perfect is a grilled cheese sandwich because the cheese makes you very drowsy. You get this insulin dump and you just really want to go to sleep. The next is heating the extremities. So just get the hands and the feet hot. And what it does is it helps cool the core. So when you heat the extremities, blood will flow out of the core. And so that helps sleep onset quite a bit. Um, CBD and CBN. So CBN is the CBD cousin and it helps sleep duration. So that what's very common nowadays is people waking up just completely wired at 2 a.m. adrenalized, like, like, you know, (laughs) that's very common. And so it helps with that. Very, very effective is breath work right at bedtime. And so that what I talked about in the book works, works for me, works very well. And I found it works pretty well for other people is just six breaths per minute. And so you do that, do five minutes. They do four minutes, three minutes of six breaths per minute. So five minutes in five minutes out, and then one minute of two breaths per minute. So 15 Mm -hmm. seconds in 15 seconds out and really squeeze the abs at the bottom, just squeeze and get all that tension out, get all that, you know, I get it all out (laughs) (laughs) and then go back to one breath per minute. And typically by that point, you're really just ready to go to sleep. You're good. Another thing that is not talked about very much and is very, very effective is the size of your breakfast. And so what I have found is that out of the body's varying clocks, the, you know, the chrono clocks, the light and day clocks, the light and darkness clocks, and then the, uh, the organ clocks, the food mm-hmm. clocks, the food clocks are stronger. Yeah. So a big breakfast in the morning will push back sleep onset. And so if you're really having issues, get in a really big breakfast. Uh, it helps a lot. And just, you know, the big list, it's kind of just keep going down that list. And just, if you're not sleeping, just add another tick in, keep adding, keep adding until, and eventually there's the the sheer weight conquers most problems for people I've found. No, there's definitely a few new things in there. I I also like to think about, because I feel like a lot of women in particular are ruminating at night, they can't turn their brain off. And so, you know, whether it's meditation, I love the Apollo Neuro, which has been, you know, because realistically, I'm not going to meditate throughout my day. But if I'm having a super stressful day, I'll put it on a sleep mode. And that definitely, you know, is working mm. to keep me in the parasympathetic. I found that to be hugely beneficial. Mm. Um, last question that I was asked multiple times, especially for people that are familiar with your work. The question that came up was, how long do you think for the average individual who's healing their gut, who's working on healing leaky gut or, you know, small intestinal hyperpermeability, if they're using your concepts or they're working diligently at healing the gut microbiome, how long do you think that process takes? Because some people are of the methodology. They made the mistake of asking me. And I said, I think it actually has taken a couple of years, but I had an extreme situation. But for the average person who's eating a standard American diet, who's maybe not doing a lot of the right things. If we look at the average American right now, if people start making a lot of these changes, how quickly in a sense, in a general perspective, do you think it can take to make some substantial changes in the gut microbiome? 
Yeah, there's two answers to this question. The first answer is sad American diet, but not massive dysbiosis. Okay, so kind of like just, you know, you're not great, but you're not completely pathologic in the gut. Okay, so that answer is very quickly. You can, and it's easy to kind of see that it's quick. It's the gut biome. You can change out very, very fast with inputs either way. You can, you can make it dysbiotic very quick. You can make it um, healthy very quick. I mean, like very short time, three to seven days. That's if you're not dealing with massive gut dysbiosis. If you're dealing with massive gut dysbiosis, it's a whole other animal. And I don't think that there is a hard and fast on that. You know, I mean, some cases with the gut are just so tricky that, you know, you definitely could be looking at a couple of years. It just, yeah. it just depends on where you're at and, you know, what you're dealing with. There's this prevalence of SIBO now that, you know, is unprecedented. And I, I believe it's just from all the excess probiotic usage, but a lot of other things as well. You know, that could be in the picture. I mean, there's just, there's so many things that could be in the picture. And that's, that's really for practitioners. That's just the home of that, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that's such a good point that, you know, bioindividuality rules, there's certainly clinical markers I'll see in labs that will lead, that will make me heavily suspect someone has SIBO. For anyone who's listening, I did a great podcast with Bibi Levine on this, um, earlier this year, which was fantastic. And generally people that by the time they get SIBO, they're pretty sick. I mean, they're symptoms, the fact that they can't tolerate most foods, they're really, really sick. And lastly, to tie this in, because I want to give Joel credit, I was at a speaking event this past weekend, and and there's a term that I had never heard before, but I will give you full credit for utilizing it, reductionism. And so this is, you know, kind of tying in the fact that people have gotten so strongly dogmatic about concepts and you know, individualizing things. And so I'd love to kind of end our discussion talking about this specific to the baked potato analogy, because when I was speaking on Saturday, there were several people asking me different things. Well, do you eat potatoes? Do you eat this? Do you eat that? And I just said, you know, I think we're meant to kind of cycle our carbohydrates depending on how metabolically flexible we are in that context. But it made me think back to your concept about reductionism that we've gotten to a point as a society where we're really very focused on making everything black and white. And I, I really believe there's a lot of gray. And unfortunately, we're not talking enough about that. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree <laughs> with you. Yeah, that wholeheartedly. It, reductionism is a line of thinking in science. It's a, it's a methodology or a way of trying to get to the answers in science. And it's the belief that we can explain the whole by explaining the parts. And fortunately or unfortunately, that has very much been debunked when it comes to the body. It's not that it's not true, but it's in more cases, more, more often than not, it doesn't bear out because in fact, there was an article back a few years ago in in the Atlantic monthly, I think it was, and it was talking about reductionism and the attempt to explain just one neuron to, in a paper and essentially the horror map had 2000 connections. And the scientists concluded by saying everything does everything to everything. (laughs) And so very often with the body, the sum total is not the sum total of the parts. It's as if there's a map that's orchestrating the parts. And so it's very easy to get into reductionistic thinking and thinking that, well, if we can just break the parts down, we can can control the whole. But very often the the inverse is true that now you kind of have to come at the whole and then you'll get the parts to kind of line up. And so it's just more of like a caution in our thinking that, you know, we want things to boil down to one thing. And the body just doesn't cooperate. It's way too complex, you know, for that. And big potato actually is kind of a really good example because so the reductionistic thinking is, well, potatoes are bad. They're carbs. Carbs are bad. bad. Uh, but the actual reality is that you can get ripped on potatoes. In fact, I have a client who we were at the end of a year and he'd come down, a guy in his 60s, he'd come down, you know, 30 plus pounds. And for the last leg of it, we just did potatoes. Mm-hmm. And he got to his goal. And it was because the potatoes did, you know, they drive HMOs in the gut, they drive phytobacteria, you know. So it came down to like, there was definitely a surgical use of potatoes, you know, very strategic use of when to use them. And you'll find that's true more often than not. There's, there's kind of a place for everything, I think. No, I think that's a wonderful example. Now, share with the listeners how to reach you. What are you working on right now? Are you writing another book? I'm sure you're doing a lot of podcasting because as people stumble upon your book, they're probably reaching out wanting to hear more about your very kind of unique and thought-provoking ideas about immune systems and gut microbiome. Yeah. So um, deepnutrition.com is where you can come. And, you know, there's uh, some courses we have that one's the immune centric fat loss course, which I'm I'm very forward, expectant, happy with, I think. Um, 
had over a thousand people come through it and really great results. It's, it's kind of the first fat loss course that really deals with the, all of the things that happen when fat cells shrink and the results have been really good. And then working on right now, I've actually got a bunch of coaches we're about to certify here coming into the new year. And that's been a lot of fun giving them like a lot of really advanced material and just some super bright people. And I can't wait to see what they're going to do. So working on a new book, which is you hit it on the head <laughs> with the immunity code, which was like, I feel like you had to barf a bunch of info out and that's kind of what it was. Mm -hmm. So that book was essentially really should have been four books. And so one of them that I'm working on right now is just the diet piece of it, because that's where most of the questions have been. So that'll be coming out next year. And then kind of really bringing it to you. My whole goal from the start was to kind of solve the problem I've been through, which is in the real world to come up with something that can work over time for most people. And that's that's what I'm working towards. And I've got some cool stuff coming out next year. So the book's on Amazon, the immunity code. And yeah, no, this has been a pleasure. I'll have to have you back because there were so many nuances and rabbit holes we could have gone down, but I was trying very, very hard to make sure that there would be plenty to talk about in a second round. Thank you so much for your time today and happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's really an honor. And uh, I love, I love talking to practitioners because, you know, you guys have your hands right to the ground and you kind of, <laughs> you just see more, you know, so it's, it's always, you know, I always learn as much. So Awesome. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.